Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to once again look at verses 21 through 33. This is marriage number two in this uh, teaching series through the book of Ephesians titled Life. There's an app for it. There's an app for that, life. I'll get it right eventually. Good to have you with us. So uh, let's, let's, uh, let me intro this. My wife's up here. She's going to read the text again. Because marriage is God's idea, strong, satisfying marriages don't just happen, but are the result of understanding and submitting to his purposes. And so we kicked this off last weekend. We thought we'd spend a couple weeks on these verses, pretty packed full. We're just skimming the service for the most part. But we learned last week, here's pop quiz for those of you that were here. The secret of marriage we talked about. What is the secret of marriage? The secret of marriage is that it is a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anybody get that? So it is to be a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' sacrificial love for us should be translated into our sacrificial love for our spouse. And so it's to be a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might get this next one. What is the power, the power for marriage? Anybody? The Holy Spirit, Spirit-filled life. We talked about that. So what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit does this, this Spirit-filled life. He takes the sacrificial love of Jesus from our head to our heart. He makes it real to us and then it begins to overflow our life, and it takes us to the next point. The essence of marriage, then, is covenant love, as opposed to consumer love. Consumer love would be that my needs are more important than the relationship. Covenant love is that the relationship is more important than my needs. And then the last big point that we made last week is that the mission of marriage the mission of marriage is friendship with the goal of wholeness. So my wife and I want to be the best friends. She needs to be my best friend. I'm her best friend with what goal? Sanctification, wholeness. And so my, my job is to help her to love Jesus more than she loves me because if she loves Jesus more than she loves me, then she'll love me well because Jesus will be her primary source of love and then out of that overflow then she will be able to love me and I will be able to do the same for her. Now we've come to the next four on this uh, on the notes, next four, so this is marriage part two, so we're going to look at the tools of marriage. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate close intimate relationship? friendship relationship with the goal of wholeness or sanctification. So we'll look at that. And then we're going to get a little controversial here. The roles in marriage, we'll look at that. And then we will talk about singleness in marriage. And then, oh boy, sex in marriage. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Can't wait. You guys ready? Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? And then we'll read our text and we'll dive into these notes. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love you because you first loved us. And Father God, we were created by you and for personal, intimate relationship with you. Our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in you. 
So through the study of your word, help us to find our rest in you and through the profound mystery of this divine institution called marriage. Help us to understand the gospel and may the gospel give us the deep, durable pleasure and power to be either married or unmarried well for your glory. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. And everyone said, amen. So let's uh, look at the text. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Submitting to one another at a reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Very good. Very profound verses. So let's take a look at this. The tools of marriage. Three tools, grace, truth, love. That's your fill in the blanks. Grace, truth, and love. And we get that from a number of verses uh, found here in Ephesians Take a look. Keep your Bibles open as we work through this. Look at Ephesians 25, 27. 25 through 27. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her. That he might sanctify her. That word means wholeness or holiness. And so the idea is we talked about that friendship relationship with the goal of wholeness Helping each other love Jesus more than they love us so that they will love us well, sacrificially. And uh, so that sanctification. So what does that look like? Uh, If you were to ask most Americans if when they die they were going to go to heaven, most of them would say what? What do you think? They'd say, absolutely. And you'd say, well, why why do you think you're going to go to heaven? And they would say, because I am basically a a good person. Very good. And and the Bible would say, ah, wrong. Because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that there's no way that we could ever earn our way into heaven. And uh, we could never do enough. We've already blown it. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's a gift. It can't be earned. It can't be achieved. It's freely given through our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When he was on the cross... What did he say? He said a number of things, but one thing that he did say, it is finished. What is finished? The work necessary for our salvation, for us to not only have an intimate personal relationship with the Father, which is amazing in itself, but that when we die, we will go to be with him for all eternity. And in fact, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 make that very clear if you want validation for that. 
Ephesians 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's out of this grace, out of this grace, then we begin to learn how to speak the truth in love. And we get that from Ephesians 4.15. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So how do we, how do we find wholeness for our lives in this marriage relationship as we are cultivating deep friendship we do it by speaking the truth in love, but the basis is grace. It's, it's understanding our relationship with God on the basis of, of grace. Take a look at your uh, notes. So here's grace. Grace is that you are a sinner saved by Christ's work, not yours. That's really, really important to understand that. So you are a sinner saved by Christ's work, not yours. Now, I could categorize probably, everybody here would fall into one of two categories when it comes to the dynamics of your relationships. There are those that would be classified as controllers, or maybe kind of control freaks, people that try to control. And those would be people that would tend to, they they would tend to, if you're a controller, you'll tend to speak the truth, but not with much love, okay? Just gonna lay it right out there, you know, I, I, you know, I just let people know exactly where I am. And sometimes it's kind of minus the love part. And then, then the opposite of that would be some of you aren't controllers, but you would tend to be more in this category of being compliant, more of the compliant type, to where you just, just want to get along. I don't want to make any, you know, waves, and I just want to be able to blend in. And so all of us would tend to gravitate towards one or the other. What happens when a controlling person meets a compliant person? They usually get married, exactly. And, uh, and if you'll look at your marriage relationship, that's exactly usually the d- dynamics. Anybody here that both of you are controlling? Both of you are controlling? Not usually, but yeah. Oh, you're just pointing out the one that is controlling in your relationship. But uh, yeah, not usually, but man, when you have that, it, it, the dynamics of it are really uh, exacerbated uh, substantially, and certainly you're gonna need to know some conflict resolution skills in that. But, but what's interesting about that is that that's typically how we, uh, the, the dynamics of our relationships work out. Now, how many, how many would think which one of us is the most controlling, and if, those of you that know Nancy and those of you that know me, which one do you think is the most controlling one out of the two of us? No, it's Nancy. She is so controlling. She always tries to control me. No, actually, she's the more compliant one. And um, she had to learn, see, so, so I'm controlling a lot of truth, no love, and she's all love and no truth. Well, she learned to start being a more, a more assertive. She learned to be less uh, compliant, otherwise we would have been divorced a long time ago. We wouldn't have made it uh, up to our 10th anniversary. And so now we're, we're working on 35, but pretty amazing. And I think it's because she had to learn, she had to learn to be uh, more assertive, and I needed to learn to, to speak the truth in love, and there was that balance in that. So here's, here's how it works, and this is why grace plays a real important role. This is what you need to understand, because if you tend to be more controlling, and it's all truth and no love, it's because you're full of pride, and you're not living in the reality of the fact that you were so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. There was no other way. 
You're not living in the reality of that. And, uh, and that's the reason why in understanding the gospel, you need to have the balance of both, that I, I, am, uh, I am more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. So that brings humility. But then you also need to take it further into the other side, that, that counterbalance of that is that, is that I, am, I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. He loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. So what's happening in the person's heart when it's a lot of love and no truth? It's probably because they have fear and they're not living in the reality of the confidence that they can have that Jesus died for me. I don't need to fear. I need to be assertive and speak the truth in love. So can you see the balance? So you need to live in the balance of that, which brings a humble confidence. Grace brings a humble confidence into your life, therefore giving you the ability to speak the truth in love. So the next time you need to speak those hard words or hear the hard words, you can tell by your response to a situation like that whether you're leaning more towards being controlling or compliant in what you need more of in your life. Do you need more of the reality of the fact that you are a sinner just like everybody else is, so you need to get some humility, or do you need to understand the confidence that you have in Jesus Christ because he died for you, he loved you, and gave his life for you. And so that's why grace is so profound and so significant in the dynamics of how we relate to one another. And that's why it's important that it's in that context of speaking the truth in love that we are able to grow up in our relationship with Christ. That's what brings about the wholeness. So let me give you the next word, truth. So you got grace as the foundation, truth. Marriage isn't the cause but the occasion to reveal your self-centeredness. Therefore, give your spouse the right to talk to you about your flaws. Give your spouse the right to talk to you about what is wrong with you. Wow, Pastor Ray, I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, probably not. In fact, what's interesting about this is that anytime, you know, when I tweet things like this or post it on Facebook or whatever, it's usually uh, most of the women will say, yeah, that's good. I never, ever get a guy that says, yeah, praise God. Tell me what's wrong with me. And it could be pride. But I, but... If you have a healthy relationship, you should be regularly asking your spouse, how am I doing? I want to hear those hard truths. And if you can't do that, it's because you lack humility. You don't understand. You're, you're more simple than you ever dared to think. You're, you're missing an aspect of what, why you are a Christian today is because you had to admit that and you have to continue to admit that if you want to progress and grow in your relationship with Christ. That's a necessary part. Part of that. And so that's important, the, the important dynamics. Uh, and, and it shouldn't be something that we have to kind of force. Hey, I need to, we need to have a hard discussion here. It should be something that should be very common and very normal in a healthy marriage relationship. And let me give you a quick illustration here. You've got cracks in your character. And you've got family and friends that probably tried to tell you that. But you wouldn't listen. But guess what? Now you're married. You have nowhere to run or hide. You're trapped. Yeah, that's what is so beautiful about marriage is because now you've got someone that's, they love you so much they're going to dog you. No, they have the responsibility. They have the right to, to confront you with your self-centeredness. And by the way, you can kind of look at it like this. 
It'd be like having a bridge that has hairline cracks. And, and maybe you can't see it from a distance, but at closer inspection, you go up there and, oh, sure enough, this bridge has cracks. And the, the regular, you know, everyday kind of traffic, no big deal. But then when you've got this uh, 10-ton Mack truck that goes over that bridge, woo, it really reveals those cracks. Well, your marriage relationship is like a 10-ton Mack truck. It's not the 10-ton Mack truck truck that caused the cracks. You already had the cracks. It's just revealing the cracks. It took me a long time to learn that one because I always thought, well, you're the cause. I was really a good person until we got married. That's an illusion. No, you weren't. You just didn't, you weren't up close and personal enough to reveal those things in your life. That's what's so beautiful about the marriage relationship. So we need to give each other the right. You need to be so healthy in your humble confidence that you can hear the hard words, you can speak the hard words which without, having, without blowing up or melting down. You can share those things. You can share your heart. There's that level of intimacy. That, my friends, is what brings about um, the Christ-likeness, the wholeness that we desperately need. But it, once again, it goes back to the grace, understanding God's grace. And then there's the truth, and then you got love. Marriage has the power to overturn accumulated verdicts and heal deep wounds through love languages. How many know what love languages are? I speak to love languages. Gary Chapman wrote the book a number of years ago. And so what we've got to do, and by the way, you know, my wife and I have been married, like I said, almost 35 years now, and we still haven't really done really well with the love languages for each other. I've learned to adapt. She's learned to adapt. And so don't put too much on that, but the love languages, they talk about five different love languages and how we define love and how we know that we're being loved by someone. And the five love languages are time, quality time, uh, meaningful touch, acts of service, affirmation, gift giving. And what you'll find out, and this is how you kind of discover your love language, is that it's typically what you kind of complain about the most as it relates to your spouse or your significant other, or those that are in your life. It's, it's what, what makes you feel the most that you're really loved by them, what you complain about, or it's what you do for them, thinking that you're loving them, but oftentimes they don't quite read it that way because they speak a different language than you. So it's pretty important to understand what your love languages are. My wife and I have totally opposite kind of love languages. Mine are more affirmation and hers are uh, acts of service. So when I do acts of service, she feels really loved. And when she affirms me, I feel really loved. And I don't like doing acts of service. And she's not real big on affirmation. And so she's had to learn through the years to kind of adapt. And I've had to adapt to that too. And, and, and you've got to use all of those. But here's the amazing thing about the marriage relationship with this love. Is that your self-image is basically a compilation of verdicts that have been passed on to you from family, friends, teachers, coaches throughout your life. And when you get into a marriage relationship, your spouse carries more weight, more glory, more influence. Your spouse has that trump card that when you're having a bad day, people are saying mean things to you, that they can trump that in your life. That they, your spouse can point either directly to Jesus or give you affirmation that imitates his love, stimulating within you greater appetite and love for Jesus. And that's what's amazing about uh, the marriage relationship, that kind of love. It can bring healing, and that's that wholeness that God wants to bring into our lives. Now, let me just say one more thing, and then we're going to get into this, uh, something that's a little more controversial, and that's the roles. 
It is a mistake, we're talking about love here, it is a mistake to think you must feel love to give love. We live in a society today that says, well, we just kind of fell out of love. I just don't have feelings anymore for this person. Or It's like, you don't even know what love is when you define it like that. If you're defining it by your feelings, that is not love. So, so it is a mistake to think you must feel love to give love. In fact, to give love when you don't feel love is greater love and greater evidence of your love. You don't feel your way into acting love. You act your way into feeling love. That's what the Bible says. And so when you act in a loving way, whether you feel like it or not, that's amazing love. And by the way, feelings are not initiators. They're never supposed to be initiators, and yet that's kind of predominant in our society today. They're, they're responders. They're always responders. So whether you feel like it or not, you do, and you, when you make a commitment in that vow, you're saying, hey, I will love you, and it's always about the future. I will still be here for you. I will always love you, always and forever. And that's that. Okay, let's move on to the next one, the roles in marriage. Here it is. You guys ready? Very controversial, but let me lay them out there. Servant leader and servant lover. Servant leader, servant lover. Let me read to you where, where you get that idea. Um, in verse 21, notice what it said, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Did you notice we started right there? A lot of times you'll start reading in verse 22, but actually it, it continues on from verse 21. It says submitting to one another. So submission, scary word. I mean, it's for both, husband and wife. And this is out of the spirit-filled life and what happens as you are more and more living in the reality of who Christ is and what he's done for you. You're less self-focused. You're a less self-focused consumer and more of a self-sacrificing servant. So that's the context. And then out of that context, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Stop there just for a minute. This verse has been abused uh, through the years and it's been used as a... um, a, a way to whip women back into relationships that they have no business going back into. This verse has been used to abuse and to send women back into abusive relationships. That is not what this verse is saying. You never, listen to me, never submit to abuse. And so that's the reason why when this idea of submission you know, comes up, a lot of people cringe, submission, forget that. Well, you don't understand the context. If you really understood the context, what woman wouldn't submit to a husband who's willing to take the bullets and lay down his life for his wife? But, but it's not often uh, taught like that. It's really taught more of as kind of as a, I mean, it's just taught in a, in a bully kind of a fashion. You kind of bully him back in there. It doesn't matter. You just submit. And, and I've seen a lot of abuse in that. It's wrong. And notice it says, as to the Lord. And then it says, for the husband is the head. So we don't teach egalitarianism, which is often taught in a lot of American churches because they struggle with this. We teach a complementary style, which is headship. The Bible teaches headship. It's right here. So who is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its, its savior, so, so the Bible, let me read, uh, so verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So the Bible lays down one principle that is very controversial but meant to blend husband and wife relationship for greater synergy and its headship. Now, let me explain this. Let me unpack this for you so you understand. Here's the next point on your notes. Men and women are equal in importance but different in performance that complements one another for the health and the enrichment of the whole relationship. Men and women are equal in importance but different in performance that complements one another for the health and enrichment of the whole relationship. So in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it talks about let us make man in our image, and it talks about how God created male and female in the image of God, which basically us together represent, not any one of us individually, but us together represent the image of God. So you got that sense of equality. Uh, so men and women are equal, but then you also see this difference begin to be played out. Uh, Genesis 2.18, it's almost like uh, God looks at Adam and he says, man alive, this guy really needs a lot of help. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That helper, suitable are really key phrases there. And immediately when you think of helper in our society, oh, little helper, you know, it almost sounds condescending, but those are powerful words actually. Helper is almost always used in the Bible to describe God himself. Pretty significant, wouldn't you say? And it's also used in the Bible as a military term for reinforcement. The idea here is that if this guy doesn't get the reinforcement, he's going to lose the battle. So I'm going to make a helper reinforcement that if this guy doesn't have this, it's over. Lights out. He's going to lose in life. That's the idea. And the word suitable is like opposite him incomplete without each other. So we are incomplete without one another, male, female. There's a complete, like two different separate puzzle pieces that fit together perfectly and make this beautiful image of God. Now, let's talk about this uh, servant leader. A servant leader is to always, next fill in the blank, is to always put his wife's need above his own, only overruling when you can't agree and believe and believe the way she is going isn't good for her, you, or the marriage. So, so that idea of, of, of servant leader, by the way, let me once again, let me read to you a text that Jesus made very clear because when you think of leadership in our society today, it's a little bit like it was in the days of, of Jesus here, this first century. And in fact, Jesus makes that very clear in uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. He says, and Jesus called them to him and said, to them, he's talking about his disciples. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They're the boss. I'll tell you how things are supposed to be done here. He's saying, that's not how you do leadership. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He's defining leadership as you're the best servant in the house. That's what leadership is. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Where do we get that? Verse 45, 
Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now think about that. As I said earlier, what woman wouldn't want to submit to a man who's willing to take the bullets and die for her? That's the idea. See, that's the context. Doesn't sound so harsh when you understand the context. You understand really what servanthood is all about. And so, okay, you're probably asking for an illustration. So how does that really work out? Because uh, I know that, and we know that, but how does that work out? Okay, let's just say this. Let's say that my wife and I are having a little conflict over where we're going to spend our summer vacation, okay? I want to go, I want to go to San Diego, condo on the beach, okay? And she wants to camp out in the mountains. And by the way, that would be kind of, kind of typical of her and I. I'm more into the, you know, hotel condo on the beach, San Diego. She's kind of more like, she kind of grew up and they went out camping. And here's my thinking when it comes to camping. Why do you want to pretend that you're homeless for a week? I mean, that's, I'm like, gee, life is hard enough. So let's just, let's sleep in the back end of the truck. Why do you want to do that? That'd be fun. No, that's not fun. So, and that's, I mean, and so I want to go condo on the beach, San Diego, sip my favorite beverage, read a favorite book, enjoy the waves, Woo, cool down. I don't want to be sleeping on some hard, you know, back in a truck or something, and then, oh, it's just, okay. Anyway, you got the point. So, so what should I do? What, what would I do in that particular situation? Does the husband, do I say, honey, remember Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to their husbands. How many would think that would be really a great idea if I wanted to end my life right then and there? Yeah. No, you don't say that because she could say, honey, remember Ephesians 5.25, you're supposed to die for me. And this is a little short of that. I think you guys get the point. If I really love my wife and her joy and satisfaction is my delight, I'm going to say, hey, you know what? We can pretend we're homeless for a week. I love you. That's cool. If you love your wife that much and you want what is in her best interest and she just finds a great delight in that, you're going to learn how to be homeless. You're going to learn to go camping. You're going to be a great camper. And, and then she will do the same for you as she learns to accommodate you and love you. And I mean, can you see the attitude that should be present in the marriage relationship as it relates to that? And so it's really about attitude. It's about heart. If you love her, he's saying, when you begin to understand what Jesus has done for you, oh my goodness, you will go out of your way to show your love to your wife. Because let's, guess what? Jesus did that for you. Out of his way? Oh my goodness. He came to this earth. He died on a rugged cross for us. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we, to reenact that in our marriage relationship even more so, create that atmosphere that she knows, I love you. I'm going to show you how much I love you. I don't really, I'm not really into that, but I'm going to be into it because I'm into you and I love you. See, that's the attitude. That's the attitude. And so, a servant leader is always to put his wife's needs above his, 
his own, only overruling when you can't agree and believe the way she is going isn't good for her, you, or the marriage. That's the basic principle. Now, here's the next point on your notes. Though the Bible is clear that husbands have ultimate authority and responsibility, very little is given in how every couple must work out the details. So how does that work out? Because, hey, you know what? In my home, when we grew up, dad always kept all the cars filled up, and that's your job. That's the man's role to fill up all the cars. What? My dad never did that. Well, you better get used to it. Whoa, 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 time out. It doesn't matter what you did growing up in your home. You've got to work out the details for your home, okay? Your home is a distinct and separate entity. And so what's interesting, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details as it relates to that. In fact, listen to what uh, Tim Keller has to say from his book, The Meaning of Marriage, in relationship to roles. This is what he says. He says, um, this has nothing to do with who brings home the biggest salary or makes the most sacrifices to care for the children. The family model in which the man went out to work and the woman stayed home with the children is really a rather recent development. For centuries, husband and wife and often children worked together on the farm or in the shop. The external details of family's division of labor may be worked out uh, differently across marriages and societies, but the tender serving authority of a husband's headship and the strong gracious gift of a wife's submission restore us to who we were meant to be in at creation. Now, the Bible does, and I gave you some verses there. The Bible gives you some few details. Wives tend to, as you study scripture, wives are more often exhorted to be gentle supporters, encouragers, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, and verse 4, nurturing children and the home life, Titus 2, 4 through 5. Also in the scriptures, husbands are exhorted more often to lead, provide for, and protect the family, but not let off the hook for the education and nurture of the children, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, 8. So that's that. Okay, so those are the first two. The tools of marriage, grace, truth, love, roles in marriage, servant, leader, servant, lover. I'm going to show you a video that will be our segue as we uh, talk about singleness in marriage and sex in marriage. Check this out. Disney movies and chick flicks, they've put us in a weird position. They've distorted our reality because we forget they're actually fiction. Because in marriage, we either get better or bitter, either joy or remorses. What we're doing isn't working. Just look at the rate of divorces. So how's your marriage? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Marriage seems to sound more like a prison than the paradise they were promised. We thought marriage was supposed to fulfill us and make us happy, not lonely. But the truth is God's first priority is making you holy. You say, no one told me. It feels so odd that dating feels like a vacation while marriage feels like a job. Yet the secret of joy, if we just pull back the facade, is realizing most problems arise when we elevate our spouse to God. Without knowing it, we fulfilled Romans 1, 25. By our actions, exchange the truth about God for a lie. We've exchanged God for lesser created things. It's like a husband trading his wife for a 2D image on a screen. Hoping it'll set us free just to find on the fumes we're choking. Because if your marriage rests on anything but Jesus, it's resting in something broken. Yet guys continually sacrifice their marriage on the altar of sex and lust. I mean, if our dollars were honest, they'd stay in pleasure, we trust. So men, grow up, put down the controller. How about you lead her with grace instead of trying to control her? 
Now, I've never been married, but I'm a product of one that was non-existent. So don't tell me I don't understand the pain. Don't tell me I don't get it. So for the singles, become friends first before you ever become lovers. Pursue Jesus as your foundation before you get under the covers. Because believe me, a strong friendship before marriage will make a good marriage after. Marriage isn't just sex, it's conversation and laughter. I mean, some spouses barely even like each other, and the marriage seems like a dead end. You might share a checkbook and a house, but are you actually friends? I mean, if marriage isn't a commitment, then what's the point of the vows we say? Till death do us part, really means until the feelings go away. Like, I'll stay with him, but only until it gets tough and my love shifts. But I say, imagine if a parent took that perspective with their kids. Like, can't you see it? The minute the kid spills something on the floor, the mom's saying, forget it. I don't even love you anymore. No, it's just like marriage. To last, you need the strength from above. Because it's not the love that sustains the promise. It's the promise that sustains the love. I mean, think about it. Out of anyone who's actually had the right to leave, God had every reason in the world that he still came for you and me. And on the cross, he paid it all, took our shame and set us free. When he could have called down legions of angels, he chose to stay on that tree. From the cross, he looks you in the eye and says, I'm taking this for my bride. When you trust in me, you no longer have to hide. Because of me, it is finished. You've been made new. You're spotless, you're blameless. There's no sin in you. Because his death was a proposal. He wanted you no matter the cost. Where some guys propose on a knee, Jesus proposed on a cross. So read Ephesians 5, whether husband or wife. Wife, honor your husband. Husbands, give up your life. Just like Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church. So men lead by serving, by putting her first. So die to self, put your flesh on a life sentence. Because you don't fall out of love as much as you fall out of repentance. good stuff. That's right on. It's, it's, yeah, right on. Praise God. That young man is uh, rock solid with his theology, and that's good stuff. Okay, let's talk about it. Singleness and marriage, both are gifts from God. Whether you're married or you're single, they're both gifts from God. 1 Corinthians 7, 27 through 31, I'll let you read that on your own. It's really quite interesting. Paul gives us the idea in those verses that we should not over-desire or under-desire marriage. You're wrong if you over-desire it. Oh, I got to get married, or you don't want to have anything to do with it. That's, those are wrong. That's a wrong understanding of marriage. And it also kind of gives us an idea in 1 Corinthians 7, 27 through 31. Don't be overly elated by getting married or overly disappointed if you don't get married. These issues in life are just temporal. They're temporary. Put your hope in eternal things is what he's saying in that. And find your deepest satisfaction in, in God and in Christ. And he, in that context, he's just saying, you know, don't make a big deal out of success. Don't make a big deal out of failure. Because in the midst of whether it's success or failure, married or unmarried, you can still live for the glory of God, and that's your purpose on this planet Earth, and that's ultimately where you're going to find your deepest satisfaction anyway is in God and in living for His glory. Next point in your notes. So, if you don't develop a deeply fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ, you will either be poorly married or poorly single. It's pretty straight up, isn't it? I mean, so, so here's the goal is that, by the way, there's something worse than being single and lonely, and that is being married and lonely. 
If you're single and lonely, before you get married, when you get married, eventually you will be married and lonely. In other words, it creates this weird pathology within your life, this disease, this problem, and you'll be putting too much weight on the marriage relationship to give to you what ultimately only Christ can give to you. So it creates major problems. So first and foremost, you find your deepest satisfaction in Jesus. I gave you a verse there. It's a wonderful verse. You hear us quoted a lot around here. One of my many favorites, and it's uh, 2 Peter 1.3. You guys know it. His divine power has given us everything, everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge, knowledge, intimate, personal relationship with God through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. Everybody look up here. You got to get this. He's our most satisfying reality, God. You're not going to find it in a relationship. You're not going to find it in more money. You're not going to find it anywhere in creation. It's in the creator, your satisfaction, and living for his glory. And he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that's how we put his glory on display. That's the Christian life. And so, if you don't develop a deeply fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ, you will either be poorly married, poorly single. Next one, for singles, this is important. In fact, I'll have you discuss it, see what you guys think I'm talking about here. Be attracted, be attracted to something in the other person that gets stronger rather than weaker over time, and you do this with lots of Christian community input, like family and friends. It's pretty good counsel. Turn to the person next to you and see if uh, they know what I'm talking about as it relates to look for something in the other person. What are those, what's that something in the other person that gets stronger rather than weaker with time? Real quick, do that. Is that a hard one? Some of you are kind of talking about it. Okay. So what did you guys come up with? What is it that gets weaker over time? How many would think that uh, I look pretty much like I did when I graduated high school? Well, I would have to say that I'm getting weaker with time, aren't I? Oh, some of you said, yeah, you haven't seen my high school picture, have you? Uh, I don't even look the same. And so he's talking about, it's not about chemistry, it's about character. That's what I'm talking about, it's not chemistry. It's not sex appeal, it's character. Over time, that man, they're getting closer to God, and the beauty of who they are just begins to radiate through their life more and more. How many have found this to be true? I didn't say this in first service, but let me say this. How many have found that maybe you, you started getting to know somebody initially, and initially, from the world's standards, they weren't very attractive, but the more you got to know them, the more they became really, really attractive because of their character and who they were as they began to show this love and this passion for Jesus. Show of hands, how many have ever seen that before? Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing sexier than a man or woman who is godly and loves God and is going for God all out. I mean, that's, it, it is. There's just, there's nothing quite like that. And uh, it's interesting. I think it was Mark Driscoll that said, uh, um, he, he's the one that made this quote. He says, getting married for the sex is like buying a 747 for the peanuts. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, that's pretty shallow, but there's a lot of, in our society, it's really promoted. It's a more about sex appeal. And let me just say this to singles, that sometimes you pass up some of your best candidates because, you, because of their looks or because of how they might look, or hey, they're not as tall, 
not as you know, mus- muscular, not as pretty, not as whatever, and you're probably passing up most of your best candidates to, to have a relationship with because you haven't taken out time to look on the inside and to find out what, what is this person, what drives their life, what is their life all about? Here's the next point on your notes. Human romance is a glorious experience, but even the best is a gift from God and a pointer to the ultimate experience of knowing God's love. Illustration I put down there was in John chapter 4. Remember the woman at the well? She'd had five relationships, five marriages, married five times, and then she said, ah, enough of that, I'm just going to live with the dude. So she was living with a guy, Jesus shows up, doesn't even criticize her, he just says, yeah, yeah, you're living with a guy now, in fact, you've kind of hit the end of the hit the end of your rope. In fact, you can drink from this water, you'll be thirsty again. In essence, he was kind of speaking in this parable kind of fashion, trying to help her to understand that you're trying to find your satisfaction in male companionship. It's not going to be found there. You go to this well, you're going to be thirsty again, but, but there's a well that you can drink from, and that's in a relationship with me. That's what he's saying. That's where you're gonna find your deepest satisfaction. And then that, out of that, then you begin to make relationship, you know, in a marriage relationship, healthy and whole. Okay, here we go, sex and marriage. Some of you just woke up right then when I said sex. Sex, sex in marriage or sex in marriage is covenant renewal ceremony, that's what it is. Sex in marriage is a covenant renewal ceremony. Let me explain what I'm talking about here. This is from verse 31. It says, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is taken from uh, Genesis 2, 25 and 26, where it goes on. It says, And the man and woman were both naked, and they felt no shame. So it's talking about this, this transparency, spirit, soul, body. And so here's your next point in your notes. Sex is for whole life giving within marriage, between a man and a woman, to be enjoyed frequently, circle frequently, okay, I'm just kidding you guys, some of you guys, some of you guys already had that circled and highlighted and showed your wife, frequently, he said it, Pastor Ray, preach it, (laughs) settle down, enjoyed frequently celebrating oneness. Let me give you a couple verses to back that up. Yes, I need verses to back that up, Pastor Ray. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Conjugal, married rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So I tell my wife regularly, your body is mine. And she says, your body is mine. Now get your body in there and do those dishes. That's what she says. It's not nice. Not nice when she says that. I was thinking something else. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now notice this, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that, listen, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's pretty important stuff. That's why I said frequently, regularly, consistently. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving deer, 
a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. I like that verse. And I can like that verse because I'm a married guy, and, and that's really a great verse. In fact, uh, some of you are saying, I'm going to memorize that verse. And if you're married, yes, you can memorize. But if that's the only verse you memorize, I'm going to think you're a little weird. But, uh, but other than that, I mean, what is it saying? I mean, you find be intoxicated always with her love. That's in the Bible. The language is even more explicit in the Song of Solomon. Don't you dare go there this afternoon and start reading that, especially if you're single. Because those passions will start, got to hold them back. And so that's, uh, okay, I need to move on, don't I? Um, so here's the idea with this idea of whole life giving within marriage. It's, here's how the marriage relationship is supposed to work out. It's supposed to work out like this, that when I, as you get to know someone, you get to know them spiritually. How are they doing spiritually? Are they a Christian? Do they love Jesus? You don't want to be unequally yoked. So it starts off with agape love. Agape love is unconditional love. And so it's in this level you begin to connect spirit. And then it goes soul. You begin to connect soul is, is phileo. It's friendship. Let's cultivate a friendship. And then on your wedding night, it's eros. And so it's a, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. It's whole life giving. I've given you spiritually, we've connected. Solely, we've connected. Now, let's connect physically because it's a celebration of oneness. Now, this is what happens when you get it out of order. You, you got the, the product of what we see in our society today. Is sexual promiscuity, next fill in the blank, sexual promiscuity causes a dissonance between spirit, soul, and body, losing its covenant-making power, harming you and your future spouse. And that's the reason why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. It says run from sexual immorality. Why? Because all other sins are done outside of your body, but this is done against yourself. It causes a shattering and a scattering of your spirit and soul, and then you don't have a whole person that you're giving to this other. It's all about the sex, and there's no really intimacy or that sense of both were naked and unashamed. And that's the reason why people go from one relationship to the next. That's why people are unsatisfied in that, because they've got it all backwards. It's wrong. It's not according to what God has established for us. And, and I need to add to that, I'm going to take out the time to do this. I've been reading a book, it's really a great book, Forever and Always, The Art of Intimacy. So the Tracys are the ones that have, have the ministry mending the soul. And uh, they talk about pornography, I'm going to run through these really quickly. And just talk about the, what pornography and how it damages us. And we live in a very pornographic society and you probably don't even realize it, but just when you turn on the TV, there's a lot of soft porn through commercials, through a lot of the stuff that's happening in our uh, society. But they go through kind of a list of things uh, of what happens. And I, th- I think it's just really good. It's educational because we've almost become immune to it. It's just that we turn on the TV, we think nothing of it, we don't understand that it's slowly deteriorating our whole idea of this sacred entity called marriage and the sexuality that's to take place within the marriage relationship. But this is what they, they said. Uh, 
here's the results of pornography. In the most vicious manner imaginable, pornography perverts sex, one of God's most precious gifts. And with each of these statements that I'm making, there's a paragraph that they kind of go on and explain that. And uh, number two, pornography slashes the jugular vein of intimacy by utterly divorcing sex from relationship. That's what I was talking about. So if you have the arrows apart from the spirit soul, all you do is undermine those two. You, you damage that. And you also damage this, this ability of sex to be this covenant renewal ceremony and this idea of this uh, covenant-making power that's, that can make the sex relationship within a husband and wife. It almost brings a solidifying of their relationship, a celebration of that oneness. And uh, number three, pornography programs men to dominate, misuse, and disdain women and programs women to accept such treatments. And then it goes on, it talks about uh, how it affects men, impact of pornography on husbands and boyfriends. Men become emotionally detached and shut down because what they've done is is they've separated this, this eros from the spirit soul. There's a total disconnect. Number two, men become disrespectful, disdainful, and dismissive of women. Number three, men become increasingly dissatisfied with their wives' physical features and sexual performance. Number four, men become increasingly insensitive, unromantic, and aggressive when engaging in sex. Number five, men develop a distorted sense of female sexuality and come to believe that women enjoy degrading practices. Number six, men often experience greatly diminished libido for their wives. Number seven, men often struggle with physical and emotional impotence. And then here's the impact of pornography on wives and girlfriends. Number one, broken trust. Number two, women experience a significant sense of personal rejection and feelings of profound shame. Number three, women typically feel responsible for their husband's sexual disinterest and therefore believe themselves to to blame. Number four, women feel intense pressure to accommodate uh, pornography's perverse messages. Number five, women feel overwhelmed and powerless to do anything about the effects of pornography in their relationships. Number six, over time, pornography can create a gateway into lesbian relationships. And man, that stuff gets a hold of your life. It's a terrible addiction. But I know this, that Jesus can set you free. And he can bring healing to your life. I've seen him do that time and time again. But the Bible says flee sexual immorality. You need to run from that stuff. It will destroy you and your, and your partner or your future partner. And you so say you get help, you get help. There's help. But you can't buy into the lies of our society with this. It's okay. And there's different levels of this porn. There's soft porn. We see it on TV all the time. There's these places you, you can go to. Guys, you have no business going to some of those places where there's soft porn. You, you run from that stuff. You stay away from it. You're undermining the sacred institution of marriage and the sexual relationship within marriage. Here's the last point in your notes. Sex is a glorious gift from God pointing to the eternal delight of the soul that we will have in heaven with God and one another for all eternity. I worked with a guy out of Palo Verde a number of years ago. He was a Christian and he was reading through the Bible and all of a sudden he realized, hey, there's no sex in heaven. He was really upset. He goes, there's no sex in heaven. I go, get over it, dude. 
It's because God has something so much better than sex in heaven, okay? We're going to connect with one another and with God in ways that'll just, it goes beyond your wildest and craziest dreams. Mark 12, 25, it says, for when they, are, when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor given in marriage. A relationship with God is, is better than sex. The Bible makes that pretty clear. The Bible teaches us that the ecstasy and joy of sex was invented by God to give us a foretaste of the intimacy and closure we will experience with him, especially when we come to know him face to face and enter into union with him in everyone who loves him eternally. Some of you struggle with that because you have been, become so perverted in your mind as it relates to the sexuality. And you even have a hard time even hearing that. What? Yeah, it's amazing. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. There's going to be three stations this morning. And what I'm going to ask you to do, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can come forward and, uh, and take the bread that represents the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup that represents his shed blood. Just a, we do this in remembrance. And remembrance is not just recalling, but it's a, it's a connecting with all that Jesus is for us, what he's done for us. He gave his life for us, and it's out of that we were able to be the, the kind of people, spouses that we need to be. God, we are so, so overwhelmed with your beauty, your glory, your design for the marriage relationship, the completeness that we can find in you and through you. Lord, we know that as we study through the scriptures, history begins with a wedding party, Adam and Eve, and then Jesus' ministry begins with a wedding party and history ends at a wedding party, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our groom, Jesus, meeting his bride, the church, those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The profound mystery of this divine institution called marriage helps us to understand the gospel, and the gospel gives us the power to be either married or unmarried well. Lord, help us to do that for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.